Join us as we kick off the first Power of the Workplace podcast. Space IQ's James Franklin discusses legal liabilities facing employers amidst COVID-19 with John Hutchins of Baker Hostetler Law. We'll share details of our next podcast at the end of this session. Take it away, James. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our very first episode of Power of the Workplace. I'm James Franklin, Chief Customer Officer for Space IQ, and it's a great honor for me to kick off our monthly conversations on trends, issues, and topics that are impacting today's workplaces. When we talk about impact, of course, that means COVID-19. And when the coronavirus hit early this year, the shift was immediate and global across all sectors and regions. Offices around the world were shutting down and working from a home became the standard for most office employees. Then in the summer, businesses started to develop their plans for reopening workplaces, but many of these plans were either delayed or dropped as spikes in cases appeared in many regions. But employers' task to provide a safe, productive workplace for employees hasn't changed. So what happens if someone catches COVID-19 at work? Are business owners liable and open to repercussions from sickened workers and their colleagues? To help answer these questions and explore the uh, considerations, we're joined today by John Hutchins, a partner with the very prestigious law firm Baker Hostetler, which is a law firm with over 1,000 employees across 17 U.S. offices. John is a veteran trial and technology lawyer with 30 years of litigation experience. And his broad experience encompasses not only commercial complex litigation, but also trial work, privacy and data security matters, as well as compliance and strategic counseling on technology matters and transactions. So turning to John and opening up our conversation, first of all, thank you very much for being here, John. We really appreciate you taking the time out uh, to explore these topics with us. Happy to be here, James. Thank you. So COVID-19 has certainly thrown a workplace uh, curveball for all businesses. We've seen economic impacts like never before, and businesses have had to adapt in very extreme ways in order to survive. And some of those adaptations impact uh, workplaces. So all businesses right away are thinking about, as I go back to the workplace and bring employees back to the workplaces, am I liable as a business um, if someone contracts COVID-19 in the workplace? Yeah, and so the answer to that is not an, not, not an e easy thing to answer. It's a, it's a complex issue. And you sort of have to start by thinking about there are three ways that laws get made in this country. There are legislatures pass statutes. There are lawsuits that develop case law that uh, can give us uh, an idea what the law is or uh, a regulatory body can pass a regulation. So uh, none of that has happened with respect to this issue. No legislature has said, if you invite somebody back to work and they come and get COVID, you're liable. Um, there haven't been any cases uh, yet, as far as I know, where a court has said that. So, so then you have to just look at what laws are um, already on the books and um, how would you apply those laws to this set of facts? And so it's going to be very fact-specific depending on the workplace. And there are a lot of different factors that would go in to determining whether or not an employer was, for instance, negligent in um, having employees come back to work and then somebody contracted COVID. 
So I went to a restaurant outside, of course, and, uh, you know, socially distanced between tables. And uh, there was a sign when we went in and it said, you assume all responsibility uh, and liability if you come in and eat. Is a sign like that necessary, helpful? Mm. Well, uh, it depends on what state you're in, uh, what the law is in that state uh, with regard to um, negligence. You know, if it's a restaurant, there's also an issue about whether or not you're what the law considers an invitee, um, which has a you have a higher duty to an invitee. Uh, in a lot of states, in most states now, you have something called comparative negligence, which looks at not just the negligence of the um, allegedly offending party, but also the level of negligence um, or assumption of the risk by the party who is uh, making the claim. So, you know, I would say a sign like that in a restaurant probably doesn't have no value, but it's not um, something that's going to protect you in all circumstances. If you, if the restaurant has a sign like that, but doesn't make people, you know, doesn't spread out their tables so that people can be socially distant, the restaurant workers don't have masks on or anything like that to protect the, the customers, you know, just uh, COVID really is no different from any other thing that a, like a restaurant might do. If the, if the restaurant was not practicing food safety, um, you know, they could be liable for things like that. If they were, if the restaurant had a, a spill and nobody mopped it up and somebody slipped and fell, then the restaurant might be liable. The one difference um, is that like with regard to food safety, there are regulations and laws that govern what restaurants need to do um, and if you and the idea is if you're compliant with the law, then uh, you have a really good defense to a negligence claim. With regard to COVID, you don't have that. People are just sort of making it up as they go along. Mm -hmm. Have you seen a lot of companies making, you know, coalescing around certain norms and standards? You know, if we're all making it up as we go along and you're evaluated based upon what everybody else is doing, how do you figure out what everybody else is doing? Yeah, in terms of what uh, what people are doing, I think a lot of people are just looking to things like the CDC guidelines or the health guidelines from their state officials. There's some things that have just, I guess, uh, in the six months we've been in this, have just been sort of uh, adopted as common practice in terms of, you know, the, the necessity to keep surfaces clean with the right kind of disinfectant to provide um, hand sanitizer to encourage employees to wash their hands regularly, to have maybe some signage that talks to people about how to wash their hands and, you know, that you need to do it for 20 seconds, you know, to adopt um, a mask wearing policy. Uh, but, you know, other than those sort of bright lines that we've all come to sort of speak about in the last six months, there could be a lot of variation in there. Um, you know, you could um, have a policy that says, you have to wear a mask when you're in the common areas in your office, but you don't have to wear a mask if you're in your own office with nobody else. But if somebody comes into your office, you have to put a mask on. What's Where's the line? I mean, nobody, nobody knows that yet in terms of things like telling people that they can't eat in the common areas. Uh, where you might have an office that's designed with a, a, a dining room in it or a, a, a place for workers to eat. 
to tell people they can't eat there, but they have to eat at their desk or they have to go outside to eat or, you know, things like that. I mean, what's reasonable, uh, again, depends on the circumstances. Then you've got the whole other issue of, of, of really, you know, for somebody to be liable for anything, first of all, they've got to sort of, they've got to have a duty to protect the person who's making the claim. They have to breach that duty. Uh, in other words, they have to violate that duty in some, in some way. And then the person, in order to have a viable claim, they have to be able to show that they've been harmed by the breach of duty. So, you know, how you determine if you invite workers back to an office environment and you have whatever protocols you decide on that are set up for your office environment, there are issues of, did everybody follow the protocols? Did the employer know that there were people who weren't following the protocols and do nothing about it? And then if you got COVID, how do you prove that you got COVID at work as opposed to when you went to buy your groceries? Um, that issue of causation, I think, is going to be a, a big issue when people do. I, I imagine people will litigate over this. And when people do start litigating, I think that issue of causation is going to be a big one because it's very, very hard to prove that you got COVID from a particular source, especially, you know, in a work environment where, you know, I have a child who got COVID from their from his girlfriend. Pretty, pretty easy to figure that out. Um, but work is a little bit different from that. So, you know, and then you've got the issue of what do you do when you know somebody in the office has had COVID? What's the appropriate protocol in response to that? Do you require them to quarantine at home for 14 days? Do you, uh, is that enough? What do you do in terms of having them get tested and get a, a clean test before they come back? What's the reliability of the tests? I mean, there are just all kinds of issues that that play into, you know, whether or not somebody can be held liable if their employee gets COVID um, allegedly from from the workplace. And we're hearing a lot more stories now about um, people that say they've tested positive for COVID but still are being required to go to work. And it seems common sense that that would be a pretty big liability. What does the, what, what's the legal ramifications of, of requiring someone uh, to come to work? Somebody who's tested positive? Um, or claims they've tested positive or whatever the case may be. Yeah. I mean, again, uh, if the standard that you're, that you're evaluating that on is, is the employer liable for some sort of negligence claim? It's really no different from um, somebody having some other infectious disease. If you, if the employer knows that there's an employee who's at work with an infectious disease and that they're coming in contact with other employees and they do nothing about it, then they may have some liability. Um, if somebody else gets sick, and can mm -hmm. prove that they got sick because that employee transmitted that infectious disease to them. It does again. It doesn't change because it's COVID. It's the same sort of set of analysis that you would go through with regard to any other sort of dangerous situation that an employee creates at work. Yeah, and you know, putting aside common sense and morality and whatnot, focusing on the legal aspects. You know, like you said, regardless of uh, the possibility for causation, 
you have to establish clear causation. Yeah, correct? I mean, a, a claimant would have to be able to to prove uh, in a civil case, they would have to prove by a preponderance of the evidence, which is just a fancy way of saying by more than 50%. Mm -hmm. um, they would have to mm -hmm. prove that, you know, the, the, that on balance, the evidence is that, um, yes, they proved 50.1% that the cause of their, of whatever caused their injury was, was what they say it is. And, you know, with, with an infectious disease, it's harder. If somebody has a, uh, you know, brings explosives into the office and the explosives go off and you're close enough to be injured by the explosives, proves it, proving that that's what caused your injury is not that hard. But an infectious disease is different, especially one that's uh, widely spread. And there are all kinds of places where you could be picking it up at this point other than work. Right, you could be yeah. getting it from your family members. You, if you have teenagers in your house, as I do, you know your teenagers may. You know, I have a I have a teenager who thinks you know uh, a a small crowd is thirty five people, and um, you know his I'm he's now back at at school, and we're sort of glad because while he was here this summer, there were all kinds of kids in and out of our house, and. Mm -hmm. You know, you could pick it up that way. You could pick it up when you go to the grocery store. Um, so, you know, proving that another employee was the cause of the infection that you contracted is a really hard thing to do. You would have to be able to eliminate all the other potential causes um, mm -hmm. to, to some reasonable degree. I mean, you, you wouldn't, you know, again, the standard is more likely than not. Um, mm -hmm. So that that's what you would have to prove. You'd have to prove based on all the other circumstances of my life at the time, it's more likely than not that I got it from my coworker. And I want to make sure I, I understand um, one point, and that's uh, you're evaluated versus what the norm is in your industry or type of business or whatever. So if everybody else is doing CDC guidelines and you're not doing those much less then your risk would obviously increase in the eyes. Yeah, of sure. Sports. So, yeah. so the, the standard is what would a reasonable person do? Okay. Um, so if the reasonable person standard, and it's an objective reasonable person, it's not a subjective reasonable person standard. So if a jury is looking at the situation and says, taking everything into account, the protections that this employer put in place were not reasonable then they could find liability based on that. Okay. And we're also getting a lot of questions about, you know, you mentioned CDC guidelines, and there's two things in the CDC guidelines um, that I would say the typical employer isn't sure how to execute. One is assessing an employee's health status, whether it's self-assessment or whatever the mechanism is. And then the other one is contact tracing. So, on the first one, what should be the considerations when a business, when an employer is trying to follow CDC guidelines and say, if you're sick, don't come to work? Uh, I've wondered about this a lot myself. Uh, again, I've got an, another child in college and they, and they are requiring uh, the students to do a self-assessment every day before they go to class. And one of the things they did was they distributed 30,000 digital thermometers so that every student would have one. You know, does that lower the risk 
of transmission? I don't know. It's sort of hard for me to believe that it does, right? I mean, you're talking about college students. Um, so, I think again, I think it depends on your workforce. What what is what is the likelihood that you know, I think there's a, there's so many things. I mean, they just pop in my mind. First of all, what's the likelihood that your workforce is actually going to self-assess? Uh, so that that could depend depending on the you know the the makeup of your workforce. If it's if your workforce is mostly teenagers working at a counter service restaurant, I think you know you could probably say maybe you have less likelihood that that workforce is going to self assess than you know people working um, on Wall Street. But who really knows, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then you know the the other issue is what are the consequences of not coming to work based on your own self-assessment? If you report to your employer that you had a hundred degree fever when you woke up this morning, I think for the employer to actually, for that to offer some protection to the employer as a protocol that they put in place, they have to say in every case, don't come to work. Yeah. You know, it can't be graded on a scale, right? Right. Um, and then the other thing is about you know self-assessment that just sort of pops in my mind is what is a low-grade fever? Um, sort of depends on who the person is. Like my normal temperature is about two degrees below what is normal. So if I have a 99-degree temperature, do I have a low-grade fever? Uh, or is it just within my normal range? I mean, who... How does an employer assess that? I have no idea. So I don't really know what the CDC guidelines are in terms of what is considered a, a temperature so that somebody should not come in the office. Maybe, maybe there's something in the assessment, self-assessment guidelines about that. But I think it it's going to vary depending on the person. Um, and then what does the employer do about that? You know, what do they do with that information? I think just going to change from circumstance to circumstance. Do employers need to be extraordinarily cautious about the answer to those questions as data, meaning, you know, make sure you don't save it. It's PII information. What kind of considerations exist there? Well, um, in terms of the privacy of the information, it's not really protected health information unless the employer is a covered entity um, Mm -hmm. and and governed by HIPAA. Uh, It might be medical information, which is sensitive information under various state statutes. But at the same time, you know, uh, if the reason you're collecting the data is so that if you get sued, you can show that you collected the data, then purging the data uh, is not the right course. So again, I, you know, there are no laws, regulations, there's no case law on what some, what an employer ought to do with the data they collect from all these self-assessments. I don't yeah. really think anybody's thought about that very much at all. Is that the same with contact tracing? So individual is sick, who who were they in contact with and who were they in contact with? Is that kind of new territory or is there existing laws and, and cases on that? Mm, there's no there's no existing laws. Uh I think within the workplace, it's not very risky to do contract contact tracing within the workplace. If if you report to your employer that you 
have been diagnosed with COVID and the employer wants to know who over the last 14 days have you had contact with in the office? I think as your employer, they've got the right to seek out that information and they've got the right to, to seek it out from, from others in the office. I mean, employees, em, employers have a lot of uh, flexibility in terms of what information they collect from employees. You know, to be on the safe side, they ought to give you some some advance warning that they're going to mm -hmm. be collecting that kind of information. So if you're going to do contact tracing within the workplace, you ought to uh, let your employees know that, that, that if they report that they have a positive COVID test, that you're going to try to figure out who that who have they been in contact with in the office, uh, you probably would be better off to let them know that in advance. Yeah. And I'm sure um, responsible employers are doing that. Um, but, you know, like all of us, we're all trying to figure out the best way to do it. What's the best way to communicate with employees, keep them uh, aware of plans, uh, especially as those plans may change. So what about how, how concerned or thoughtful should employees be or employers be about here's our plan and then something doesn't go to according to plan and then they pivot. So if they realize maybe an approach was not a good approach, is there any considerations as you say, we said do X, but now we've decided Y is better and safer? You mean like uh, you shouldn't go out and buy a mask and then... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> sometime later, sometime later, uh, everybody should wear a mask. Yeah, um, or uh, you know, wear uh, get the P95 mask, you know, with uh, the filter. But now, don't do that. So whatever the yeah, case may be. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the the what's driving employers to communicate their plans and the uh, is is two things. One, they want the protocols that they want employees to to follow, to be known and to be clear. Um, and, and you can't do that without communicating what those protocols are. And two, they want uh, to engender in their employees uh, a feeling that uh, the workplace is safe and secure uh, to return to. So I, I don't think there's any real legal requirement um, on the part of employers to you know, communicate the entire plan. But if you don't do that, then, you know, your plan has less, it probably has, there's less chance of your plan working if you don't communicate it. In terms of changing, uh, you know, you decided to do something and then you decided that that really wasn't working. So you decided to do something different. It's not going to put you in a worse situation, particularly if you've discovered that the thing that you the thing that you're pivoting away from was not, uh, you know, lacked efficacy. It wasn't wasn't effective, or somebody got sick because of that. Uh, if you change, there's a there's an idea in the law of products liability that if somebody's injured by a product, it's called it's called um, remedial measures. And if somebody's injured by a product, and you change the product so that people won't be injured by that same thing the evidence of the remedial measures is not admissible in evidence to prove that the product was dangerous in the first instance. 
it may come in for some other reason, but it's not admissible to try to prove that the product was dangerous to begin with. So, and that's because you want uh, product manufacturers to to switch from dangerous conditions to conditions that aren't dangerous. And I would think that the same uh, sort of idea would apply in this situation. If you were doing something that wasn't effective and it was causing people to get sick and you changed from that, you know, the, the fact that somebody got sick by the way you were doing it to begin with, that's not gonna be excluded from evidence, but the changes that you made to something new, that's probably gonna be excluded from evidence, at least for the purpose of trying to prove that what you were doing to begin with wasn't safe. Yeah, which as you said before, the standard is common sense. So if you've learned that something's a better approach, common sense says you should do so. So it, it's good that that's indeed the case. Um, and, and we could explore all these topics for a very long time. And our whole goal was to make this, you know, pretty short and concise. So I have one more question. And it's around requiring people back to work versus giving people the option to return to the workplace. We've seen a lot of different companies taking different approaches to it. And it varies by sector quite a bit. Some companies are saying you need to come back uh, and we're going to do shifts, half the workforce or whatever comes back uh, for one week and then the other one. Other industries are saying, come back if you want and let us know and we'll work it that way. Is there legal considerations about that? Uh, is there risk in telling people they need to come back versus you know, discretionary? I mean, again, I think it depends on the business. Um, Obviously, there's a difference between, you know, a meatpacking plant and a law firm. Um, yeah. You can't do meatpacking remotely. So if you're going to do that work, you, you have to be at the employer's location. Uh, where people have the option, I think certainly if you, if people have the option and there's no real physical reason why they need to come back. And uh, now there's, I think one of the things that makes this different is now there's quite a bit of evidence that's building up as to uh, how productive people um, can be working remotely. And within any organization, you would have quite a bit of data about how productive a particular worker has been working remotely. I think, uh, you know, to for an employer to require somebody to be in the office when um, there was no real physical reason for them to be there. And they have uh, some data that's built up over the last six months about how productive that person has been uh, to require that person to come back to the office. Even if you put all the protocols in the world in place, I think it probably raises your risk um, if they get sick. Uh, because they can always say there was no real reason for me to come back to the office, you know. But again, what the evidence would be in any particular situation, how a jury might look at any particular situation, it's going to vary from case to case. Um, yeah. But it's certainly something that employers ought to think about. They ought to be thinking about whether or not they're, you know, what are the reasons for requiring people to come back into a physical space um, if they're if their workforce has options not to. They, they ought to have really pretty good reasons. And uh, attitudes about this are changing pretty dramatically, uh, as you would expect. So 
what might be viewed as very good reasons six months ago uh, are certainly being reconsidered now, you know, if for nothing right. else, necessity. Right. Um, well, John, I really appreciate your time. This has been fascinating. And like you said, we're going to see some some cases on this, uh, some litigation on this. So it'll be interesting to see how this unfolds. And uh, I'm excited to hopefully getting you back uh, when we start learning more about this from a legal standpoint and, uh, and, and exploring that more deeply. So thank you once again for joining us with uh, Power of the Workplace. Thank you for joining our Power of the Workplace podcast. In our next session, Kane Hoxter, Space IQ Chief Sales Officer, discusses workplace data governance with experts from Building Eye, an IWMS AutoCAD BIM consulting firm. For a complete list of podcasts and upcoming episodes, visit spaceiq.com forward slash resources. See you next time for the Power of the Workplace podcast by Space IQ.